Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Real Estate Advisor Podcast. I'm Andrew Dick, an attorney with Hall Render, the largest healthcare-focused law firm in the country. Today, I'm joined by Michelle Mader and Mark Ferguson from Ancura Consulting. I've had the opportunity to work with Michelle and Mark uh, offline on a couple of discussion points, and uh, I've, I've read some of their thought leadership pieces and thought it would be great if if we would have a short discussion about what they're seeing in uh, the healthcare real estate industry and the capital planning industry. They also do a fair amount of strategy work for hospitals and healthcare systems. And uh, so I thought today would be a a perfect time to catch up with them, see what they're working on. So uh, Michelle, Mark, thanks for joining me. And uh, why don't you take just a minute to introduce yourselves? Sure. Thanks, Andrew. Um, so my name is Michelle Mader. Um, I've been a healthcare strategist for the last 25 years, and I've worked with a number of healthcare providers, both nationally and a little bit internationally as well. Really, um, I focus on service line opt- optimization and distribution and really how we generate revenue and how we control costs. And the other thing that I really have been focusing on lately is um, looking at and evaluating new and innovative care delivery models for healthcare providers as we're seeing shifts between the outpatient and inpatient world significantly increase um, post-COVID. And I'm Mark Ferguson. I lead the healthcare real estate team at Ankara. I'm an architect by training and my 30-year career is focused on strategy for healthcare's physical footprint, future of care, and how policy impacts healthcare buildings. Terrific. Uh, Michelle, Mark, thanks for joining me. Really looking forward to the discussion today. Um, I thought we would focus our discussion on uh, two points today, uh, financial trends in the healthcare and hospital industry, and then regulatory trends, because uh, I've had discussions with both of you on um, uh, both of these points. Um, You've also written uh, at least one, maybe two articles on some of these points, and uh, thought it would be good to catch up. So this will be part one for our audience of a, of a two-part discussion that uh, we're planning with Michelle and Mark. So uh, let's tackle the first topic, uh, financial trends in the hospital and healthcare industry. Uh, the pandemic had uh, a significant impact on hospitals in particular. Um, let's talk a little bit about the data. So Michelle, Mark, um, uh, what are you seeing in the industry? Um, how are hospitals and health systems performing? What type of impact has the pandemic had on uh, their financial performance? Yeah, Andrew, thanks. Um, so it's been an interesting couple of years, as, as most of our listeners have probably understand or know, right? Um, the healthcare industry has been on the front lines of the COVID pandemic and working through that since you know early 2000 and 20. And so as we look at, at what has happened over the last three to four years, it's been an interesting ride, mostly because it's been a combination of what economically has been challenging with COVID, as well as the federal government pouring CARES Act money into the industry, right, to buoy it to make sure that we continue to provide access, that we continue to provide um, services, particularly emergency services and ICU services to the general population. So, but if you look um, at sort of this year, which is what I want to concentrate on, Kaufman Hall does an annual report, their national flash report, and their June report, which looked at May of 2023 numbers was very interesting. Basically it's showing that volumes, which is how the industry essentially gets paid, they're increasing, but on a slow steady pace. In other words, what happened was, is when the pandemic 
pretty much, you know, cascaded out of the, and it's not all gone, but has cascaded out a majority of the hospitals, you would expect this backlog and, and people rushing for care, right? All this delayed care. And what we've seen is that's really not happened. It's been a slow elevation back to 2019 levels, particularly um, on the ED. And so as we look at those rising numbers, um, they're not like an avalanche, it's not like a tidal wave, they're just slowly coming up, which means that revenue for hospitals isn't just coming back in floods, right? They're just not regaining what they lost during the COVID years. They're having to try to keep the steady space. Yeah, and ED volume is especially interesting because so much of um, inpatient volume is driven through the emergency department. So we still see those volumes down, but of course, behavioral health volumes are significantly up the complexity of those cases. The general complexity in the ED has still kept the ED full. Yeah, no, absolutely. And to make to make things more interesting, length of stay, which is basically how long a patient stays in the hospital from the time they enter the door until the time they're discharged. Um, we basically, the healthcare industry kind of gets paid on a DRG basis or one lump sum for that length of stay. So the shorter a patient stays in a hospital, the more essentially money hospitals make in theory. And what we've seen is that the length of stay or the acuity, how sick patients are, is increasing. Um, and it's actually up five and a half percent from last year, right? So we're seeing actually sicker patients in the hospital than we were even last year. And last year wasn't at the height of COVID. Um, on the surgery front, which we always find interesting because it's the economic engine for healthcare providers, um, their minutes are not really fluctuating. In other words, the number of surgeries and how long the surgeries are going on is only up 0.1% since last year, which means that this backlog of people not having surgery because they didn't want to come into the hospital, we're really not seeing that come back and or that that's already passed us and we're kind of leveling out. But that's the economic engine for most healthcare providers. It produces the most revenue on that front. Now, on the flip side of that, right, we've been talking about hospitals, is that outpatient revenue is up significantly year over year, almost 10%, 9.4%. So we're seeing this shift, right? You heard me talk a little bit about what's happening in innovative care deliveries in my introduction of this shift from inpatient care going to a hospital to going to your neighborhood urgent cares, to your neighborhood providers, to your neighborhood CVSs for care. And so we're really starting to see that as well. Yeah, and this um, this increase in length of stay on the in inpatient side has really added to the complexity of planning for healthcare facilities. We've got a client in the Midwest that finished a new hospital in 2019, used all the benchmarks that we have been using to, to project bed numbers and they have significant capacity issues because their length of stay is up by almost 50%. And the real trick here, as, as, is, as we plan now, is trying to project what post-COVID, two years out, three years out, may look like related to length of stay. So we'll continue to track those things. Yeah, and there's some other metrics. You know, revenue is a big deal, right? Top line revenue is what a lot of people look at, even in their commercial businesses or in general economic terms. But the thing that everyone, right, even us who are, you know, parents and, and family members and just general community members is the rising inflation, escalation and expenses we're seeing across the country. And the healthcare industry isn't, you know, isn't immune to that. And so they're really seeing expenses rise and which is putting a lot of pressure on operating margins, particularly around labor um, there over month over month. And, you know, there's been a lot of news and press releases around travel nurses, and we're paying all this money for people to travel around the country to substitute for staffing who aren't coming back to the hospitals. And that's generally true, but they most providers have gotten a handle on those contracts and are trying to push those labor expenses down. But just to kind of give you an idea the, um, the surge year to date, and this is from January to May, so you're talking essentially five months or so, labor is up 13.5%.
And it's just tremendous in those five months. So there's a lot of, you know, when you hear about, you know, services closing or access or waiting lists or things like that, a lot of it has to do with staffing and not necessarily their ability to provide services long-term. When you look at all of these, right, so kind of sledding slowly coming back volumes, when you look at the rising expenses that we're all feeling on a day-to-day basis from gas to groceries, the operating margins of the healthcare industry isn't great right now. And it hasn't been that, it hasn't been great and it's been buoyed by the CARES Act for a number of years. And so we're starting to see that downturn, unfortunately. But, you know, year to date, we're down um, from last year of May of 2021, the um, operating margins are down 45.6%. Guys, that's almost half what they were a year ago. Now, again, we're seeing the slowing and trickling in of CARES Act money, but providers are just between the expenses and the slowly rising revenue, they're just not making it up. And so the operating EBITDA margin from last May is also down 36.1%. Those are double digit, huge numbers for the industry. So we're watching this very, very closely as it relates to what sort of we think is going to happen in the next couple of years. So I want to touch on two points that both of you made. So Mark, you said you were working with the health system in the Midwest, worked on a project, uh, currently, you know, use the metrics at the time that were appropriate. Uh, you know, fast forward to today, the, the, the hospital doesn't have enough capacity. What is the advice to that health system? Uh, do you look for expansion options? Uh, or do you wait and see how things shake out over the next 12 to 24 months, given that we're we're still living through a very unique time uh, coming out of a pandemic? Yeah, we are living through a unique time. And, and the risk is higher than it was in this last planning cycle because, you know, we're routinely saying, seeing $800 a square foot for construction costs in, in healthcare. So, we will continue to look first towards decanting services to purifying inpatient facilities to inpatient volumes as best we can, being conscious of the efficiencies of equipment and things like that. Um, but we will have to look at an option to expand that hospital. And um, it'll just come after we've looked at ambulatory options. Yeah. And, and the trick of that is really on the sort of the staffing side, right? Because we've got clients who have opened up buildings, who have opened up additional floors not to be able to put patients in there on day one because they just don't have the staff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yes, the capacity is at some level in some markets, particularly urban growing markets like Florida and Texas, those capacities issues are what we call beds in a head, right? Or heads in a bed. And so that that is very true huh? in the but the issue is, is if we can't staff them, it doesn't matter how many beds we build, they're just going to set empty. And that's a capital cost sitting on the books with no revenue generation to support it. And that's risky. So this balance between the expenses and the staffing and meeting the capacity and purifying the hospital is going to be tremendously important in the years to come. That's that's right, Michelle. I mean, I've worked on a couple of projects on the East Coast recently, and at least one was put on hold because the health system said, even though we're in a growth market, um, we can't find the staff to um, provide the services in this new <laughs> to be constructed building. So I think I think you're you're spot on. It's a it's a huge challenge, Michelle. I want to hit on another point you brought up as well when you talked about some of the financial data. Um, you talked about the growth in outpatient uh, services. Um, what type of advice are, are you giving to health systems that are seeing that growth and profitability in outpatient services? Do they continue to double down on those services, whether it be 
uh, urgent care or ASC type services? Yeah, so outpatient, um, planning outpatient environments is kind of a little tricky business. And, and mostly because as you would, most most common people or most, you know, the general community thinks that, you know, every physician makes a ton of money, right? I mean, everybody wanted to grow up and be a lawyer or a doctor when they were in school, right? Because those are the professions back in the day that made a lot of money. And the reality today is, given the current reimbursement and the current expense structure, a lot of healthcare providers lose money every time they employ a physician practice in primary care. Now, that is not the case in specialty. So your orthopod, your neuro, all of some of those subspecialties, they still make what we consider a tremendous amount of money in the industry. And so they're very profitable. So yes, the healthcare providers are looking at doubling down in some of those key services in order to fuel and to backfill some of what they're losing on primary care. But what we're really seeing the shift to outpatient is not only to from the hospital to an ambulatory or neighborhood environment, but also from the neighborhood environment into telehealth, right? And those payment structures, the federal government hasn't, they're starting to look at them coming out of the pandemic. They solidified them and they're going to keep them rolling, but we're not getting anywhere near paid if you go in to see your physician versus if you call them on the video, right? And it's a delta of almost 3x difference between the two. So we're still incentivizing providers at some level to continue to push in-person visits to their practices financially. And, and to some to some metrics, it's needed from an outcome and from a patient service standpoint, because telehealth financially hasn't caught up with the rest of the industry to make it more profitable. Interesting. Uh, those, are, those are great metrics. Uh, let's switch gears and talk about private equity and how private equity firms are moving into healthcare and uh, the impact that has had on uh, different markets that you all are working in. Uh, M- Michelle, Mark, uh, what are your thoughts at just a macro level? Yeah, and we'll only touch briefly on this today because let's face it, that could, this could be a whole podcast in itself. But part of the reason that we're tracking private equity investment is that we're concerned at some level that the types of companies and the changes that these companies are making in healthcare could disrupt the pathways by which many of our legacy clients are generating volumes, tracking volumes, projecting volumes. And those are the tools by which these companies balance their for-profit services with the things that are more mission-focused. So what we're seeing, it's, it's, it's of course, I think everybody knows that we're seeing a tremendous increase in investment by private equity in healthcare from 2015 to 2019, almost a 300% increase investment every year since then, double digit increase. But what's really interesting to us is the types of companies that private equity is investing in. Initially, these were hospitals under the theory that we had an aging population in America. Um, and then it was on kind of high margin, unregulated services. Some would argue that that almost single-handedly created the price billing act. But what we're seeing now is a recognition by private equity that their investment focused on capitated care, <laughs> advantage, value-based reimbursement, it, um, reimbursement has long-term valuation gain. So that started with buying up primary care physicians. We're now seeing private equity place um, play in the consumer um, enabling space. And again, all those kinds of things uh, can impact these relationships with physicians and with consumers that legacy healthcare providers have depended on for years uh, to, to generate volumes, to control volumes, again, to balance the financial side of what they're doing. So we're tracking companies like Babylon that uh, is in the consumer enabling space, has some really interesting technology that they're playing in. Dispatch Health has been a fascinating company to watch 
you know, a little bitty company in Denver that started in 2013, operating in two or three markets, some private equity backing that came in 2018, 2019, um, you know, within a year or two, Dispatch Health was in uh, 19 markets, 12 states. I checked last night, they're now in 41 markets in, you know, 25 states. It's extraordinary the accelerant that private equity dollars can um, can, can push to scalability like we've seen do in, in so many places. So we'll continue to watch this, Andrew. Um, again, we want to make sure that we can guide our traditional and legacy clients in a way that will help position them best for success going forward. Yeah, that's those are great data points, Mark. And um, I agree that private equity has had a, a significant impact on healthcare services. Uh, just a few years ago, we saw private equity heavily invest in home health care and, and uh, just as those companies are looking to exit, it looks like the, the big healthcare insurers are, are buying up those companies, uh, really going all in and, on uh, home healthcare services. Um, really fascinating to watch. Um, uh, let's, let's switch gears again, and uh, let's talk about the regulatory landscape. Uh, both of you co-authored an article uh, titled How to Claim Healthcare Market Share, uh, on the verge of certificate of need irrelevancy. Uh, really, really good article, uh, timely article was published at the end of May, uh, caught my attention and uh, because I've been tracking uh, the regulatory landscape and changes in the CON laws. Um, let's talk about at a high level, um, uh, the regulatory landscape and the certificate of need laws in states and how it's changing. In your article, you talk a lot about uh, the landscape across the country. Uh, uh, Mark or Michelle, just give me your thoughts at a high level. Uh, is CON relevant today? Uh, what's going on across the country as these laws evolve? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Um, so this is an area that I'd like to just, you know, CON is certificate of need. And just for our listeners who may be not understanding exactly what we're talking about, it is a state-based um, law or a set of laws that basically govern healthcare providers, people who provide healthcare services with their ability to expand, ability to provide better access to services or put new services in new markets, et cetera. So originally, you know, historically CONs were put in place to enhance access, making sure that everybody had true healthcare, that they could access services in their local communities. It was really to reduce duplication, right? Let's not have two MRIs sitting five miles from each other in the same market, you know, increasing costs. And then they also, you know, historically your state legislatures have been looking at making sure that your rule, right, those areas that we don't have a lot of infrastructure and your local providers continue to be viable, right, that they weren't essentially putting each other out of business. And so that's essentially, you know, what CUN at a state level. And so right now there are 35 states plus Washington, D.C., who have some type of CON law, but they vary really dramatically across each of the states. And during COVID, about 24 of those states either suspended or permitted emergency exceptions to their CON process, meaning that they said, okay, we're in a pandemic, right? We just, we want to make sure that everybody has everything they need when they need it, and we don't want them to have to jump through regulatory hoops in order to access the needed infrastructure. And so they really significantly reduced those. Yeah, this has been, excuse me, this has been an interesting thing to watch. You know, this discussion has been bubbling around on the value of not-for-profit healthcare in America for years. And COVID was kind of an accelerant to this discussion. 
you know, we had a, a, a lot of the CON legislation, the hurdles were brought down so that we could access care, look at alternative care sites and the things that went with that. And what immediately came out of that, really before we had a chance to analyze the data, was a discussion as to whether we needed CON at all. And that's kind of fascinating when you think about it. And not all that assuring to me personally, but but that's the situation we're in. Yeah. And so a lot of policymakers are considering CON reform or elimination in at least 18 states in this past year. So we had 24 that suspended. Out of the 24 that suspended, 18 of them gone, well, do we need these at all, right? They work just the healthcare industry was able to move forward just fine during the pandemic. We removed barriers that were there historically. You know, we've not seen, as, and to Mark's point, we haven't had a chance really to analyze the data on the long-term effects, but they're looking at this. And so in the last year or two, there have been 10 states, such as North and South Carolina, that have um, looked at bills that are either fully or nearly fully repealing their previous laws. In other words, they're looking at complete elimination or almost complete elimination. But some states are saying, oh, hold on a minute. First of all, the jury's out. We don't know, you know, the long-term effects of some of these reductions or these exceptions. And so let's carve out some sections of the CON that we know that are maybe not applicable in today's world. And so, for instance, like for cardiology procedures, so a, a cath procedure or something like that, um, they're moving to the outpatient setting in a hurry, right? We Just technology and medications are allowing patients to to have these procedures in true outpatient settings and not have to go into the hospital to have their heart looked at or to look at a stent or a balloon put in um, from a vascular standpoint. And But some certificate of need it's in some states have prevented cardiologists from going out to ASCs. And so we've got this momentum, right, that says, hey, we can do it in a better care, better outcomes in a cheaper setting, and it's much more convenient for the patient. But the state's going, well, wait a minute, you can't do that. And Ray's going, okay, what's going on? So, you know, there, there are some parts and pieces of the CON law that they are releasing or eliminating that makes sense based on where the healthcare industry is headed. Um, but it's, it's been fascinating to sort of watch what has been accelerated in the last two years. Yeah, one of the things we focused on in the article is kind of the levers to partial CON repeal. And I think that might be the most likely scenario that we'll get states that will focus on health equity or we'll get states that will focus on the cost side, the cost metrics. Um, or, or creating better pathways to healthcare for, for rural environments. And that's something we'll continue to study because I think, again, we're going to see that in an individual state basis. Yeah. And just, you know, everybody is looking at, okay, what's, what's the data going to tell us? And so we're, everybody right now is watching Florida. So, you know, back when Florida removed their C1 in, in July, I think, or the summer of 2019. So before the pandemic, a good six, nine months before the pandemic. And we've seen this huge flood of service development in the state. Um, the number of zoning and building permits have increased dramatically in the last three years um, and general construction in that state. Now, this is a this is not healthcare specific, but general construction in the state of Florida due to the economy, the uh, COVID backlogs, tremendous demographic growth. I mean, people are pouring into Florida from a state based population. Um, it's up 31 percent in the first half of 20 of this year of 2022. So tremendous amount of growth in a, in a state that released their CON. And a lot of that is healthcare, to be honest. Um, people are putting new hospitals, new ASCs, new urgent cares, but you have the prime demographic for healthcare, right? An aging, retiring population um, moving there in mass because of the weather and because of their state laws regarding income and things like that. So we are watching. We saw this in Texas several years ago. Texas has had very little regulatory overview um, in you know, the past decades, and we've seen them really explode in services. And then capitalistic markets doing what they do, which is regulating demand eventually, but that's an eventually a couple of years. And I think we're still several years out from seeing that in Florida. 
Yeah, and we're seeing some interesting things on the real estate side, too. I think in both Texas and Florida, we've seen um, things like land banking. Uh, I think, you know, we bring tools to this as well, but but systems know in growth areas where they should be and where their competitors are. So buying up that intersection, looking for opportunities from a, a regulatory perspective to kind of carve out opportunity to build in places. You know, that's part of the reason we've seen a rise in freestanding EDs, when, which when you think about it, you couldn't think of a more operationally expensive model, but it is our flag in the ground to a lot of these fast growth areas. But what we're saying on the CUN is extending into other markets. And so, you know, when you look at the overall regulatory mindset right now of the Biden administration and of our current CMS and at the attorney general and at the state level, everybody is looking at healthcare. And the reason is, is one, it's been in the news nonstop, right, since the pandemic. So it's on first of everybody's agenda. Two, it's a very personal issue, which we all know from an individualistic perspective. But then also it's one of the highest growth areas of cost for employers, Right. They have been seeing for decades that their premiums just increase over and over again. So um, everybody is focused on healthcare and the cost reduction in healthcare. So we're seeing a lot of MA scrutiny um, as we look kind of moving forward. So let's talk about that, Michelle. Uh, lots of MA activity over the past few years. And uh, when I've had discussions with you and Mark about this in the past, it seems like there's not only been a lot of regulatory oversight, uh, but the results of the M&A activity have been mixed depending on how you look at these larger transactions. In particular, big health systems emerging with other big health systems. Um, the question always comes up, is it really good for the patient or consumer in those markets? Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I think the data would say, um, in fact, if we asked the Justice Department, I don't know that they would quantify it as mixed. They would say consistently, we have not expanded care. We've not lowered costs. Um, the, the original idea, certificate of public advantage, um, those metrics haven't necessarily played out the way we hoped they would. And I think that's part of the reason we're seeing a, a kind of a competition forward administration putting tools in place to limit competitions, at least in a horizontal way. Yeah, and, and they're not being, um, they're being very bullish about it, right? They're not even trying to hide sort of what they're doing behind the scenes. Um, they're just kind of straight out there up front. And so as of June of this year, so, you know, we're sitting here the 1st of August, but as of June of this year, nine health college system deals have been called off this year alone based on the um, FTC, right? Based on the, the DOJ or the FTC coming in and going, guys, we don't really like this look. Um, you know, you're going to become a monopoly in a market. We haven't seen the data that says you're going to be able to pull off what you are promising to the communities. And so we are going to either fight it directly, which they've had in some instances, or we're going to disprove of it so strongly that it's not worth the expense for you to fight it. And so, you know, we've seen this with the for-profits and the not-for-profit. There is no favoritism in this perspective as it relates to the healthcare system. And so, you know, there, it was interesting. I was reading um, an overview of this in a journal not too long ago, and the FTC said this in a statement when they put to bed, essentially the steward healthcare, which was in Utah, was going to sell five of its hospitals to HCA. And then RWJ Barnabas Health was dropped its plan to purchase the New Jersey-based St. Peter's healthcare system. So when all of this was happening, right, in these examples, the FTC came out and said this, quote, the, um, these deals should have never been proposed in the first place, and the FTC will not hesitate to take action to enforce the antitrust laws 
to protect healthcare consumers who are facing with un, who are faced with unlawful hospital consolidation. So they are calling it straight out, right? These deals shouldn't be put together to begin with. We don't want hospital consolidation. We are out here out to protect the consumers and the patients, and we want lower costs. And so we're seeing this everywhere. And it's not just at the federal level, right? That's at the FTC at the federal level at sitting in DC, but also at the state level. So, you know, our hometown is Charlotte, North Carolina. And just this last week, our district, or sorry, our Eternal General asked our own in the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Resources to deny HCA healthcare owned mission hospitals application to expand in Buncombe County based on the lack of competition. So it's the D, the general, you know, the attorney general in our own state here in North Carolina, even in the last week, I said, no, Mission is already in Buncombe. They're the only player there. We don't want them adding 67 beds. We want other competition in that area. And for those of you who don't know where Buncombe County is, it's out there by Asheville and it's in rural North Carolina. We're not talking about a metropolitan city. We're not talking about a dense area. It's rural healthcare, but they want competition even in rural healthcare, which kind of flies in the face of what CON has in North Carolina has tried to ensure for years which is that those rural healthcare providers are viable long-term. So, you know, when you look across this, it's it's not the, they really are scrutinizing and trying to ensure lower cost access, access for healthcare on a horizontal basis. Um, so anything or of a hospital system acquiring or merging or doing it with another healthcare system in the same market, everybody's coming out and going, no, that's not, you know, if you're going to create a monopoly, if you're the only player in town, we really want to discourage those practices. But that's not necessarily the case when you look at vertical integration. Yeah. And, you know, I think we're encouraging our clients to look at vertical integration, both because we think it's good business taking a page from what private equity is doing. But if they are focused on horizontal mergers, um, we think it really takes a, a, you know, a special focus on the data um, a special focus on how they're going to improve healthcare in the market. Why are they specifically the best player to do it? And how are they going to improve equity? How are they going to improve um, the lives of people in many rural environments who don't have access to care, have transportation issues? What are they going to bring to that that will speak to the FTC and address the issues and concerns they have? Yeah, you, you all hit on a number of uh, hot topics that, that we've been tracking Really, uh, if I had a headline, it would be the rise of the state attorney general uh, around the country, uh, where they've taken a more active role in regulating healthcare. care. Um, a couple of points on the East Coast. Uh, we know that in states like Rhode Island, uh, there seems to be more oversight of nonprofit healthcare care systems selling to for profits for fear that uh, the for profit health system may sell uh, assets in connection with the sale lease back, and then somehow the community may lose control of valuable healthcare assets. And then I know that uh, I had a discussion with both of you about um, uh, Mass General in the news, and uh, maybe one of you could talk about that. Uh, and and they had very grand plans to uh, expand in their markets, and it sounds like the state uh, AG stepped in and started asking some questions. Maybe you could hit on that just briefly. Yeah, and that's been in the national headlines for, I, I think we've been tracking this for almost a year now. It was the first big, um, and this wasn't a merger. So for those of you who are listening, this isn't a consolidation of healthcare systems or a vertical or horizontal. This is just them expanding their own system. So they basically proposed, uh, Mass General uh, proposed, which by the way is the largest healthcare provider in the state of Massachusetts. 
um, they proposed a two point uh, two plus billion dollar expansion plan, and it really consisted of about four four major projects, four or five major projects, depending on how you want to break them down. And then when they proposed this, the state came back and said, "Well, well, wait a minute." And it wasn't the AG office out of the get go. It was really Massachusetts Health Policy Commission that they got um, set up, that they came back and said, wait a minute, we wanna know a performance plan. We wanna see from you a performance plan on how you spending all of this money in the state is actually going to decrease healthcare costs and give people more access. And more importantly, make yourself more efficient, right? We are funding through Medicaid and Medicare, um, the portions of your revenue all the time. So you're gonna, we need you to prove to us through a performance plan that you're gonna be able to improve healthcare overall for the state. So you know, months went by and they put together a plan and essentially what happened is ultimately they greenlighted two of those four to five projects that were huge expansions. They're going to be, you know, a billion plus dollar expansion towers, essentially, that are going to be created. And then the health system took off the plate some of their ambulatory environment or ambulatory for projects. They were going to do two or three ASCs out in the community. So what happened is, is this health commission essentially cut their proposed expansion by half by saying you can't prove that what you're proposing is ultimately going to be in the best interest of the Commonwealth. And so therefore we don't want you to do it and we're gonna discourage you to do it. But the amount of expense, the amount of due diligence, the amount of political PR that went into this for months um, has been tremendous. But it was the first one that we saw where really the state stepped in heavily and said, no, it's not just M&A, no, it's not just monopolies and markets. We don't want you spending our precious public dollars that you get by being a not-for-profit and in profitable or you know, only focusing on certain aspects of access. So that was really something different. And I think other states are going to do the same thing. I think we're going to continue to see that these large traditional healthcare providers who have billions of dollars and who control state-based healthcare are going to find more and more scrutiny at the federal level, at the state level, but also at the local level. So I was reading an article not too long ago where Saratoga Hospital in New York, they wanted to rezone 16 acres, right? This is a small, this isn't a $2 billion project, um, wanted to spend $14 million on expanding the hospital and rezone 16 acres. And the local community and the local government came back and said, no, right? Our healthcare is already expensive. You can't prove to us that this is going to make our access and our outcomes any better. You know, it's just going to be passed along to the consumer and into our employer payer base, right? And increase premiums, et cetera. So no, we don't want it. And I thought, whoa, that's 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 taking it to the local community level. So there is there's enhanced scrutiny and attention at this for this and the healthcare providers across all levels of oversight. You know, and I think that as there are healthcare pundits that would say, well, you know, that's just Massachusetts or that's just New York, but we see a fairly good consistency with priorities on both sides of the aisle on this issue. You know, this intention to lower the cost of care to prove that not-for-profit care is an advantage to, uh, to Americans, I think it's something that is not just an administrative specific thing. Yeah, and, and Michelle, you hit on something that we've talked about in the past, um, uh, local planning and zoning authorities stepping in based on feedback from the community. Um, I was talking with uh, one of the major health systems in Florida. Um, they don't have a certificate of need law to deal with anymore, but what they found is they've received quite a bit of resistance in certain communities at the planning and zoning level. So that's that's a new hurdle that these health systems historically haven't uh, had to um, address in the past. It was always there, but uh, not so much um, these planning and zoning bodies are taking a more active role in shaping healthcare, so to speak. 
That's frightening. And <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 you know, and it, it it tells us that we aren't you know for a long time. You know, I've been doing this for twenty five plus years, and for a long time there was a subset of the population who really understood healthcare, right? Who at the consumer level who understood their cost. You could decipher an EOB when you get it from your payer. Um, and from your insurance. And I think that I think COVID has accelerated the general consumer's attention on this issue, has highlighted wellness and behavioral health and mental health, you know, sustainability, and has also taught people, you know, to access lower costs of care. And all of a sudden they said, well, instead of, you know, I've got a sore throat, instead of going to the ED where it's going to cost me $2,000 or $3,000 for a sore throat, I'm going to call telehealth or I'm going to go to my urgent care because I don't want to go to the ED because I don't want to catch COVID, right? It wasn't because of cost to begin with, it was because they were scared. And now that they've seen the benefits of that, we're starting to teach huge population bases on how to navigate the healthcare system because they were forced to do it during COVID. They were forced to look at alternative sites of care, and now they're realizing the financial benefit. And I don't think that tide's going to swing back anytime soon, if ever. And so, you know, COVID really accelerated the teaching of both at a state level, at, you know, local levels, at your local community, and even within your families on how to navigate healthcare in our system. And I think that's a benefit to everybody. But it's changing how we plan, it's changing how we look at strategy, and it's changing how we're going to move forward as an industry, for sure. Yeah, and that might be kind of the big takeaway. I think you combine some of the consumer choice changes that we've seen that, you know, technology's been an accelerant to, and put that with the double-digit impacts of some of those financial metrics we talked about. And hopefully we'll be moving towards new pathways for care, more efficient ways to, to do healthcare and, and, and get the better efficacy. Terrific. Michelle, Mark, this was a great discussion. Uh, Thank you for being on the podcast today. Uh, Just to remind our audience, this is part one of a a two-part discussion. Our our second part will be focused more on staffing and labor-related issues for hospitals and healthcare systems. Uh, That will be released uh, soon. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening today Um, on your Apple or Android device. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave feedback for us. We also publish a newsletter called the Healthcare Real Estate Advisor to be added to the list. Please email me at adick at allrender.com. Thank you. Thank you.